This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today, so uh, we will uh, miss his presence here today. Uh, I, of course, write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law, and uh, Craig is a blogger at mayitpleasethecourt.com out of uh, Southern California. In the last uh, week or two, uh, very much in the news has been the events uh, in West Texas, uh, a telephone call from someone who identified herself as a 16-year-old girl and claimed that she'd been raped and beaten by a 50-year-old spiritual husband resulted in the raid of a polygamous compound. In the raid, 416 children were taken from the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sect in West Texas and put into temporary custody by the Texas Department of Child Protective Services, uh, which believed uh, that there had been abuse uh, or threat of abuse or neglect. Uh, 139 women voluntarily left the ranch to care for them. Uh, The girl who placed the call has yet to be found. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about some of the legal issues surrounding this case uh, and uh, polygamous sex in general, the uh, question of child abuse versus religion, sex legal rights, and who are representing the children and the fate of these children. Helping us do that today will be two guests. Uh, First of all uh, is Attorney Betsy Branch, who is uh, with the firm McCurley, Orsinger, McCurley, Nelson, and Downing in Texas. Uh, she is a former Bexar County Assistant District Attorney in the Family Violence Section and a former Texas Assistant Attorney General, where she was in the Child Support Enforcement Section. Uh, Betsy Branch, uh, along with her partner Mary, Mary Jo McCurley, is representing several of the children in San Angelo um, and uh, is very much involved in the proceedings there. And we're talking to her. She's on the phone with us today from San Angelo. So welcome to the show, Attorney Betsy Branch. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And joining us uh, next is Wendy Kaminer, a lawyer and social critic who writes about law, liberty, feminism, religion, and popular culture. She blogs about civil liberties at thefreeforall.net. Uh, a former Guggenheim Fellow, she's the author of seven books, including Free for All, Defending Liberty in America Today, Sleeping with Extraterrestrials, The Rise of Irrationalism and Perils of Piety, True Love Waits, Essays and Criticism, and A Fearful Freedom, Women's Flight from Equality. Her articles and reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, the Wall Street Journal, the American Prospect, Dissent, The Nation, the Wilson Quarterly, and Free Inquiry. She serves on the board of directors of the ACLU of Massachusetts and on the advisory boards of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and Secular Coalition for America. Uh, Welcome to the show, Wendy Kaminer. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And uh, just to point out that we uh, did attempt to reach uh, uh, attorneys uh, representing both uh, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ and uh, also uh, representing uh, this, the state's interests in this case, and uh, uh, they've uh, 
decline to uh, participate in the program today. So I, I wonder if we could start, uh, Betsy Branch, you're, you're there in San Angelo. Uh, bring us up to date, if you can, with, with the legal uh, activity that's going on there. Well, actually, yesterday there was a lengthy meeting, not really a hearing, with the court, with Child Protective Services and a number of the attorneys at Lightham as well as attorneys for the parents and guardian ad litems. We have two distinct levels of ad litems in our state statutes. Um, attorneys ad litem, of course, can only be attorneys, and guardian ad litems are lay persons who are also looking out for the best interest of children. We had a number of them there. The meeting yesterday uh, opened with the court stating that it was to make sure that everyone understood that that was not to be a hearing and that there would be no evidence. And then the court proceeded to have a dialogue with the department about moving the children, the placement of the children, and took complaints from a number of the attorneys at litem as well as the guardians about removing uh, children from breastfeeding mothers as well as the very young children from their parents who have voluntarily been staying with them at the Coliseum. From what I'm reading, there are uh, activities going on in, in various fronts, uh, legal fronts here. I mean, I, I saw that there were a, at least a, a group of attorneys yesterday who uh, were urging uh, the court to uh, – was it the court or urging the, the governor, actually, to, to help uh, kind of disperse these cases through through the system so that they were not all concentrated in a single court – uh, and uh, I understand there's also uh, at least one uh, appeals pending already uh, in, in the appeals court uh, trying to uh, uh, get uh, an order from the court on how these hearings should proceed. Do you have, are you involved in, in, in any of those matters? Well, I know about them, and there's actually some mandamus relief that's pending in the third court of appeals um, seeking uh, to mandamus the court to go back and re-examine the ruling from the temporary hearing, the 14-day hearing, which is a post-emergency hearing that was held and concluded. Um, it was held on the 17th and 18th of April, concluded on the 18th. And that is what the mandamus relief is in regard to, based on that order, because they believe that the court, the argument is that the court abused its discretion, which is, of course, a source of mandamus relief. Um, as far as the what the governor um, addressed, there there really isn't um, under our state statute in the Texas Family Code the proper jurisdiction is where the child resides at the time the suit is in play. So that is the Schleicher County suit, which Tom Green County has the authority because. Rural district counties are able to, they, they still have the old circuit judges, and I use that term loosely because they're no longer on horseback, of course, but that's where the, that's where the premise first came from. And so they are able to hear these matters in Tom Green County because they are within that same district. And, and I, I want to 
bring Wendy into this in just a second, but I wanted to ask, you're, you're representing, I think, a couple of the children at least. I'm not sure how many. Uh, Our firm has been appointed ad litem for uh, three children, two teens and one toddler. And I don't know to what extent you you can or cannot talk about those cases, but but what? Well, that's pretty uh, much all I can say. Okay, uh, with uh, but the, with the specifics as to those children. Okay, but but you've uh, I mean you've met with these children and and, uh, and and talked to them. I have met with the ones who are verbal, and I have also met with the one who is pre-verbal, uh, who was with his mother. Uh, Wendy Cameron, I wanted to bring you into the discussion. Um, you've uh, written uh, about this on your blog, uh, and uh, uh, you're somebody who's who's been uh, in, involved actively in in the American Civil Liberties Union and in, in in civil liberties issues throughout your your professional career. Uh, and uh, talk about, if you can, your your perspective on on the civil liberties aspects of what's happening uh, in West Texas. Well. Imagine what the reaction to this case would be if it did not involve uh, a group that's been labeled a sect um, that uh, has practices and beliefs that are repugnant to many people, maybe to a majority of Americans. You know, let's imagine that they had gone into, uh, let's say, a community of Christian scientists and taken away all the children because Christian scientists don't provide medical care to their children, and that can, you know, obviously put children at risk. Imagine what the uproar would have been. Imagine people talking about the sanctity of parental rights. Imagine all the conversations about uh, what, what level of proof the state needs before it can forcibly remove children, you know, as, as young as children who are breastfeeding from their parents, from their mothers, when... When the mothers, you know, the women in these cases, as far as I know, haven't been shown to be to have been involved in any sort of abuse. They have suspicions of abuse. Um, they have, uh, as I understand it, a number of, um, you know, maybe five, I've read somewhere there were maybe five or six underage girls who were pregnant, or they had some, maybe some evidence that women had given birth while they were underage. But, you know, none of that is evidence that everybody in the community is guilty of child abuse. It's just astonishing to me that the state could go in there, raid this compound, forcibly remove all these children. And, you know, the the conversation that, that you read in the press is mostly, oh, you know, well, this is difficult and we have to figure out what's best for the children and some of them will suffer in foster care. But there's no real outcry about uh, the summary deprivation of parental rights. It's, it's, it's really amazing to me, and I think that it's mostly due to the fact that this is um, a, a fringe group whose practices are demonized, and that's labeled a cult. Now, I say this as somebody who has really no sympathy at all for polygamy. I'm not suggesting that um, any group of people has any sort of religious right to abuse children, um, whether you're a religious group or a secular group. You know, you uh, your children have the same rights. Uh, there's no question that religion is not um, an excuse for any form of child abuse. But we haven't had any child abuse proven here. And now we learn that this original phone call, which was allegedly from a 16-year-old girl who was being beaten, may well be from some uh, mentally disturbed 30-year-old woman who had nothing to do with this sect. And then on top of it all, the judge orders mandatory DNA testing 
of all the children and their parents. And, you know, for the most part, nobody utters a peep about how abusive that is. What happens to all this DNA? You know, how long is this going to be kept in some database? I mean, I was quite disappointed that the ACLU didn't speak out loud and clear about this. The ACLU generally opposes the, the maintenance of DNA databases. The ACLU opposes taking mandatory DNA samples from everybody who's been arrested. These people haven't even been arrested. There's no, you know, there's no evidence that any of them are guilty of any crime. Well, and, and you've been critical on your blog of, of the ACLU of Texas, uh, which did put out a statement, uh, which I'm not sure if wimpy was the word you used, but uh, I, I think, think that I was the, the import. Timid and timid and <laughs> uh, what, I mean, what should the ACLU be doing here in your perspective, or what could it be doing? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know... I, I, First of all, the ACLU should be speaking out, I think, um, much more emphatically about the very important um, civil liberties that are at stake here. It should be speaking out much more emphatically that the state took this action without any real evidence of abuse, that they are, that they are basically acting on a presumption of abuse based on what the um, religious teachings of this group are and based on the fact that they have... Uh, found some number of girls um, who were pregnant, maybe, or who had, uh, that there was some evidence that there were some girls who had children while they were minors. But, you know, you, 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 you cannot hold an entire community guilty for what may be the crimes of some of its members, especially when you haven't even proven those crimes. You just suspect them. So, you know, imagine that you're the member of a commune and somebody in your commune is, oh, I don't know, you know, using drugs. And the police go in and they, they take all the children away from all the parents in the compound because there are a couple of parents who they think have been using drugs. That is the equivalent of what happened in this case. Um, I was actually in the courtroom uh, during the hearings on the 17th and 18th. And to say that there was no evidence, there actually was evidence and admissions by some of the young girls to the Child Protective Services um, investigators with regard to the fact that there was indeed uh, a young woman who was there who whose name was the name uh, that's been in the newspapers, and I, since I don't represent her, I'm not going to mention her name on air, um, but that also admitted, um, you know, to being in, entered into these uh, religious marriages under age. And so to say that there was no evidence um, is not an accurate statement. There no, is she, some I, evidence, sorry, whether you believe no it's sufficient. The entire community. You know, that you, you know, I, I, as I've read, there have been, uh, there's, there are, from what I've read, there are some underage girls who are pregnant. I mean, that is surely evidence of sexual abuse. Um, and I understand that there, that there have been some girls who testified to abuse. And if you want to go after the men that they name in their cases, you know, the, the district attorney should do that. But the, the individual testimony of, you know, five or ten or, or twenty girls, the, the fact of, of pregnancy among five or ten or twenty girls is not sufficient evidence to take children away from, you know, from how many parents. It's not, it's not evidence to remove 400 children from their parents because they're part of a community in which a few people, you know, some small number of people have testified to abuse. Well, is is there ever a situation where a culture is, is so established or ingrained that that it 
it justifies this kind of broader response than than well, I, you know I don't think so not in a criminal court I mean I'm you know I am not suggesting that it's illogical or unreasonable to be extremely concerned about the welfare of the children in this compound um, you know, I, I, I am not suggesting that there's no reason to think that there aren't other children being abused. But when we're in a court of law, you know, we're, we're not just, we, we can't just base these summary actions by the state on suspicion, on inference, even on common sense. We need proof when we take actions like this against people. Well, Betsy, what's your perspective on that? I mean, you've, you've worked uh, kind of on both sides. You're a, a, in private practice as a family lawyer, but you've also represented uh, the state uh, in the county. What, what's your perspective on the state's role here? Well, number one, the Child Protective Services action is not taking place in a criminal court. It is in a civil court, and the procedures for the Child Protective Services or the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, of which Child Protective Services is one arm of that uh, bureau, um, there there is actually uh, a number of provisions in the code, or there are a number of provisions in the code, including uh, one that says that the court may consider whether the household to which the child would be returned includes a person who has abused or neglected another child in a manner that causes serious injury or death to the other child or has sexually abused another child. And because of the broad definition of household under our state law and the fact that they are actually living in these communal residences of, of, of communal households is is on is where they what they rely on to have taken the children out of the home and what they relied on during the adversarial hearing. Now, I agree that this what needs to happen in this particular case is that they need to break this case down. It no longer needs to be a collective 330 children. It needs to be the individual children. Um, this is filed under Chapter 5 of the Texas Family Code. The suits are entitled in the interest of the child's name, a child. That's not what's going on here. And we're supposed to be examining the individual parent-child relationship. And because of that is the reason for the DNA testing. I'm not opposed to the DNA testing. I know that a number of the attorneys at Lydum uh, have been unable to find out the names of both parents. And in order to make sure once these cases are broken out that we have given notice to the persons who have an interest in these individual children, then we do need to know who the dad is, more than being just an alleged father. Um, I know in one circumstance we have a young girl whose mother is deceased. She's never been adopted by anyone. Um, we know that the the alleged father of this child doesn't reside in Texas. So in order to make sure that we have service so that we are giving notice to the right parties, 
That's the purpose behind the DNA testing. You know, I understand that the DNA testing um, was well intended. Um, I understand the the need and the desire to um, match parents and children, but that doesn't mean that uh, that that's, that doesn't mean that there's there's that this DNA testing can still be subject to abuse. I mean, I would really still be interested in knowing what's going to happen to all of this DNA evidence once this case is concluded. Is this going to remain in a DNA database? Are they going to use the DNA in this case um, that they've taken in this case in criminal cases against some of the men? My, my guess is that they would. Um, now, that you know may or may not be a reasonable thing to do. There's a lot of debate about that. The Washington Post did a very lengthy front-page story just a couple of days ago about this very controversial practice of taking DNA from the family members of suspects in criminal cases. Now, you know, reasonable people are going to differ about the the justness of that practice, but it is very controversial. We're not having any of those conversations in these cases. And I think the reason that we're not having those conversations is that this is a maligned group that has been labeled a, a cult, not even a sect, but a cult. And so somehow we don't, we don't want to afford them the rights that we would afford other groups. And that's what is most troubling to me about this. You know, well, I have to disagree with you, Wendy, because these conversations are taking place in Texas, and they are being afforded um, exactly the uh, the ability to come forward in making these arguments. Jerry Goldstein is representing a number of the men on you know on the criminal aspect if there is going to be one and he you know he's a nationally recognized lawyer and is absolutely committed to making sure that their civil liberties are not trampled no, on so i can't I, I say that, that we I'm are not, not having these conversations I, 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 because when i say we, we are not are. having these conversations i'm i'm talking about what uh, the conversation that's taking place sort of nationally in the press. I, I, I know that you've got some very good attorneys down there who are looking out for the rights of their clients and who are very concerned with this. And I, you know, I, uh, I would expect that these issues are being aired in court. Um, I probably should have been clearer. When I talk about the conversations, I'm talking really much more about the public conversations, that there's just been very little um, outcry about this that there's been very little controversy about it. We're gonna, we can come back to that thought in a moment. We're going to just take a, a short break, and, and when we come back, we'll pick up the conversation. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. 
We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is not able to join us this week, but we're we're talking to attorney Betsy Branch uh, from the firm McCurley, Orsinger, McCurley, Nelson, and Downing, and uh, lawyer and social critic Wendy Kaminer, a blogger uh, uh, on civil liberties at thefreeforall.net. And uh, we're talking about the cases uh, in West Texas, and, you know, the, the point, Wendy, that you were just making about kind of the national conversation that's taking place here, it's I, I make a, a habit of regularly following what's going on in among legal bloggers, including academic legal bloggers, practitioners. And I've been struck by the fact that a, a, a large community of, of people who usually have uh, no shortage of things to say about uh, stories in the news have been uh, – strangely silent about uh, what's happening in West Texas. There has not been a lot written about this. Uh, I know there's a, a couple of bloggers in Texas uh, and, and elsewhere who've been following it, but as a as a sort of a community, there seems to be, uh, I don't know, it, it, whether it's confusion about this issue or just uh, a, a indecision about it. Uh, is it the sexual aspect here? Is it, what, as you refer to it, the cult aspect? What What's What's driving the, the, the lack of understanding about this situation? I think it is uh, both of those things, the cult aspect and the fact that, that this case involves child abuse and that, um, you know, th- there is every reason for um, a, a rational person to think that there are children at risk of being molested in this group. Um, that is not an unreasonable assumption. Uh, you know, it's not an unreasonable belief. Um, as I've said before, you know, a, a, a reasonable belief like that may, may seem like a common sense belief, I think, is not a basis for this kind of summary legal action. But I think it does um, discourage people from uh, talking about the case. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the real test of a civil libertarian is whether or not you're going to extend the same rights to everybody, no matter how despicable their beliefs or practices seem to you. And I think that this is one of those situations where we have a group that um, is considered to be quite despicable in the way it lives, a group that's considered to pose harm to children. And so a lot of people, a lot of groups, including the ACLU, do not want to be seen as being on their side. I mean, one of the things that struck me about what I thought was this very timid statement from the ACLU, which, by the way, didn't even mention the DNA testing, was uh, that the the ACLU felt obliged to say the ACLU opposes child abuse. Well, of course the ACLU opposes child abuse, but, you know, what you hear in that, I think, is this fear that if we stand up for the rights of people in this case, people are going to think that we're in favor of child abuse. People are going to think that we're in favor of polygamy. Right. Well, something I've wondered about this case is, is whether the, the the state could have responded in a, in a less uh, broad, less sweeping way. I mean, if there is a fear of, of child sexual abuse, I mean, even there, wasn't the evidence that, you know, 
if it's happening, it's it, it, apparently it is happening, but it's not happening at least until a certain age. I mean, why why does every child need to be brought into this? Every parent brought into this? Betsy, is what's your perspective? Well, again, on? I think what they were acting under is in uh, the Texas Family Code, and actually it begins in Chapters two sixty one. Um, with regard to the investigations, and initially, when you go in and remove, and again, it goes to that definition of household um, for suspected abuse, and the investigation bore out what had been reported to them, so they initially take the children in. Now, I believe that a large number of the attorneys at Lytum truly believed um that the younger children would be permitted to go home with their mothers. Uh, I think that there was a large um, contingent who were quite surprised, as was I, that the younger children were not being permitted to return home with the mothers while they focused on the children who were most at risk. Um, But again, this was... This 14-day hearing that they had after they initially took the children into protective custody was simply to determine whether there was enough evidence that an ordinary and prudent person believes there should be further investigation. And so you have to also look at what the judge was looking at for her burden of proof. And there will be a status review hearing in 60 days, and the department is going to be required to file uh some proposed uh, parenting plans within 45 days. And hopefully we'll be able to break these cases out for the individual children. I know that a number of us attorneys at Lytum have gotten together and figured out who are our siblings, who is representing our siblings, so that we can act within a group for these children um, as a family unit, and this also includes the children of some of the sister wives because you understand these children are all raised together. And so I think that once the process can operate in in the manner in which it was designed to operate, which wasn't with this huge group to, to all be taken collectively, I think that you will start to see... Um, different results taking place for different children. And, and what is likely to be the ultimate outcome for these children? Do, do we know, do we have any inkling of, of how where they might end up? Well, again, that's going to depend on what the, what the remainder of the investigation comes up with, and also that is going to be very much contingent on uh, the individual parents and where they want what they want to do with their uh, family service plans in 45 days. I mean, it could be that um, that they will agree to uh, to provide protection for their children from sexual abuse, and you know, to implement some sort of guarantees that there will be no sister wives before their age of 18. Because in Texas, you can actually marry at 16 in a ceremonial marriage if your parents provide written permission. So that only covers the first wife. Um, it is the sister wives who cannot be in an informal marriage because under Texas law there is no informal marriage 
for anyone under the age of 18. These people do not have relations with one another outside of the spiritual or informal marriages as Texas law sees it. So if there is some guarantee in place that there will be no informal marriage of children, then I think that they could very well satisfy the state law that's that's saying that to marry and to have these children in an informal marriage is sexual abuse. All right, we are uh, getting just about to the end of our time, uh, and uh, before I before we conclude the program, I want to give each of you an opportunity to give any wrap up thoughts, any final thoughts you want to offer, uh, and also if you'd like to point our listeners to uh, a website, a blog, uh, or just provide contact information to our listeners. Uh, you can do that. So, uh, uh, Wendy Kaminer, uh let's uh, hear from you first. Okay, a couple of quick comments. One, Betsy has stressed that this is not a criminal case, and it's not a criminal case, but the consequences of it for the people involved may seem as severe as the consequences in a criminal case. We have 400 children who have essentially been summarily detained by the state. We have parents, including mothers who are breastfeeding, who've had their children taken away from them, even though the mothers have not been shown to have been engaged in any abuse at the time that the children were taken away. Um, You know, as I listen to Betsy now, one of the things that's troubling me is that what I'm hearing is that there there are all these uh, after-the-fact justifications of what appears to me to have been an illegal raid on the compound. I mean, what was the evidence of abuse when they went into this compound? A phone call from somebody who claimed to be a 16-year-old girl who has not appeared and who now they think is this mentally disturbed 30-year-old who had no connection to the church. So, you know, we have what, as I say, what looks to me like an illegal raid on this compound, and now we have weeks and weeks of efforts to find some justification for it. And, I, you know, that, that's not the way the law is supposed to work. That's not the way we protect people's liberties. Right, and, and Wendy, your blog is at thefreeforall.net, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. And, and uh, Betsy Branch, your final thoughts? Um, well, again, breastfeeding mothers have not been separated from their children. And I, and I realize that there are a lot of rumors and innuendos that are fed into the media and, you know, are circulating, but here on the ground know that the attorneys at Lydum for the children are protecting the children, and we are fighting to make sure that the very young children are staying with their mothers. Um, And as far as justification after the fact, I can't really say that that's true Uh, The initial investigation took place prior to the time the children were removed, and a number of children spoke with the investigator and bore out the tale of this young girl who phoned in. Now, the fact that they are now saying it may have been this woman from Colorado, I can't speak to that. I haven't seen the evidence, but I was in court, and I did hear the evidence, and I understand why the judge ruled the way she did, although I can say it was somewhat disappointing to a number of ad litems of younger children. Um, and so at this point in time, as far as what's going to happen next, it really is early in the Child Protective Services process, and it's a shame that the system is having to be reviewed on national television because of the this huge case that's occurred. 
but it happens here every day when when children who are believed to be abused are separated from their family until the court and the Child Protective Services can implement some sort of plan to assure that the children are safe. Uh, what is going to happen in this case, I don't know. The investigation isn't complete, and the investigation is ongoing. But just know that there are a lot of Texas lawyers here who are very devoted to their clients um, and to the rights of their clients. And, you know, I speak as an attorney at Leiden for the children. I know there are attorneys for the parents, um, and there are attorneys for the state. But I think that everybody's goal, including the parents and especially the attorneys at Leiden, are to make sure that the children's rights are protected as well. Um, our company, our firm, has a website. It's McCurley or Singer McCurley Nelson and Downing. That's www.momnd.com. Um, and if there's a link uh, there for me, if anyone has any comments, I would be happy to review them. Well, thank you very much. And of course, a lot of these attorneys are spending uh, time on this case uh, for little or no compensation. And uh, no compensation. No compensation. <laughs> well, not all of them are right. getting it's no compensation. Uh, but, all the attorneys for the children are volunteers. And uh, so we certainly respect the, the work that they're doing. Well, that about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Uh, a huge thanks to both of our guests for taking the time to be with us and to uh, share their thoughts on this issue. Uh, remember, you can always uh, get all of our Lawyer to Lawyer programs at the LegalTalkNetwork.com and You can also find all of our programs in the podcast library on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.